So I would encourage you to either look at the flyer, the handout that you have, or turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation. And this is the Apostle John, who is uh, presenting uh, the vision as Christ has revealed it to him. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was worthy. No one, let me read this again, no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found. Excuse me, my own technology here is uh, not, not behaving properly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he could open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Our fathers, we come to this passage of your word. Uh, we would pray for your own Holy Spirit uh, to be the one who would be our guide and instructor, the one to teach us and lead us into all truth that we might properly understand what Christ is revealing here, and in particular, uh, as Christ is revealing concerning himself, that we who belong to Christ might find in him everything we need for life and godliness, that we might find in Jesus uh, the purpose for living, that we might find in Christ rest for our souls, that we might find in our Savior and Redeemer uh, the very meaning of life and everything that might give us purpose. Uh, we would pray then for understanding. 
We pray for your spirit to wean us away from the cares of the world and draw us unto those things which are of great glory and significance, uh, of eternal purpose, uh, connected to the mission of Christ in this world. And so open up our hearts and minds to this chapter. Enable us to understand that this we pray for the glory of Christ. Amen. So here we come to chapter 5. It's the continuation of the same scene, essentially, that we saw in chapter 4. But the vision begins to change dramatically. Uh, The apostle John is still beholding in this scene the throne room of God, God who is the king, God who is the sovereign creator. And we have essentially the same audience of worshipers, We have the four living creatures, and we have the 24 elders. But now the central focus shifts, and it begins by zooming in upon the right hand of God, to that scroll, which is written on the inside and on the outside and sealed with seven seals. And with this scroll, a new kind of action begins. John beholds a mighty angel. Uh, He happens to be a new member of this vision. Uh, This angel who raises this question with a very loud voice, the word loud voice there is that from which we get the word megaphone. And in that loud voice, he says, who is worthy to open the scroll or to look into it? But no one can. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. No one in all of creation is able to do this. And this registers upon John as something like a momentous tragedy. It so grips his heart, it so rends his heart, that he begins to weep loudly because there is no one worthy. And then in response, one of the 24 elders speaks to him these encouraging words. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And this sets the stage, so to speak, for the appearance of Christ. And his appearance arises, according to the Greek, out of the very center of the throne. And John sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And it is in this form that Christ appears that states his worthiness to open the scroll, and to break its seals. Now, what we have here so far, and in the rest of this chapter, is Christ revealing in symbolic forms his mission and the roles that he plays in the history of the fallen world. As chapter 4 was preeminently a revelation of God the Father as the creator and sovereign king over all creation, so chapter 5 presents Christ, the Son of God, as the Redeemer and the Sovereign King over all of redemption in human history. And with the worship that we find in this chapter that is ascribed to Christ, and then jointly to the Father and to the Son, we have our main theme. We can state it this way. As the Father seeks us to worship God in spirit and in truth, We must revere the Son as the Son reveals himself as worthy of all glory. And let me say this again. We have been using that statement that Jesus gave to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 as thematic of all these messages since January, where 
Jesus said to the woman at the, at the well, A time is coming, and now is, when those who worship the Father shall not worship here, but in essence according to what he himself was bringing. And he says, essentially to the woman at the well, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, for such the Father seeks to worship him. So the Father sent the Son into the world with a great plan and a complement of redemption in order to recreate in us our highest purpose, which is to be those who would worship God in spirit and in truth. And now we come to chapter 5 here, where we recognize and see that Christ is revealing that he himself is a central part of that worship that we are called to give to God. We must revere the Son as the Son reveals himself as worthy of all glory. Now, with respect to this message in our passage here, there are three aspects of how Christ reveals himself that I want us to highlight. Christ reveals himself as, first of all, judge, then secondly, conqueror, and then thirdly, sacrifice. These are the three aspects of the mission of Christ as God incarnate, as his role and his role as the redeemer that are presented in this chapter. And as we look at this, I want us to keep in mind something the Apostle Paul said with respect to the, the preaching and teaching and instruction and equipping of the church in Ephesians chapter 4. In, in verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul pinpointed this essential purpose of our learning the whole counsel of God as our being equipped by God's truth. And he says it in this way, that God's truth is to be taught to the people of God, especially so that we can all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And that's the purpose of this chapter. It's to open up our eyes to deeper dimensions of the knowledge of the Son of God so that we can all attain to that unity of faith that unites us together in the proper worship of God. Especially out of this chapter, we shall see that we must honor the Son even as we honor the Father. He's revealed to us here as the judge, the conqueror, and the sacrifice. So in the first place, this whole heavenly scene begins with a focus upon the scroll. And that reveals to us the role of Christ as judge. If we were to read ahead, we would see that as Christ breaks each of the successive seven seals that are upon the scroll, that judgments are unleashed upon the earth. Now, this is something very significant about Christ that so often stays in the background in most Bible-believing evangelical churches today. The role of Christ as the judge. But it's not in the background of the New Testament at all. Let me illustrate this. If we begin with John the Baptist, we can see that in his doctrine, his teachings about the Messiah, that judgment was prominent. In Luke chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, we have Luke recording how all these people were coming out and questioning John because of his baptism. And this is what John said to them. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Uh, John the Baptist there is teaching a twofold mission on the part of Christ. There's salvation and there's judgment. He's going to gather his wheat into the barn, but he's going to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then we could turn to the second chapter of the book of Romans, where, according to what Paul is doing there, he's writing as though he's addressing the Jews, uh, the, the non-Christian Jews. So in chapter 2, particularly verse 5, verse 16, this is what Paul says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, verse 16, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So that's Paul addressing that statement about Christ and judgment to the Jews. But then, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Paul is specifically making this statement uh, to the people of God, to the church. And he says to them, for we, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then Paul even uses this concept of Christ, the judge at the end of history, in preaching, proclaiming the gospel to non-believers. So in Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching to uh, all of those who are gathered at the Areopagus, there at Mars Hill, uh, basically uh, speaking to those who are pagans, who have their many idols and so forth. And he preaches the gospel, and in verse 31 he says this, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, in addition to this, the early church understood Christ as the judge in a manner that was so significant to them that all of the earliest creeds that we still have uh, contain the statement of Christ as the judge. For instance, the Apostles' Creed. We read, He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Um, I used to not understand what the word quick there meant. But it's an old English word that simply means living, the living mm. dead. The Nicene Creed says essentially the same thing, that Christ is going to judge both the living and the dead. The Athanasian Creed, toward the end of the 4th century, uh, speaks of Christ ascending into heaven, being seated at the right hand of God the Father, and from there he's going to judge the living and the dead. But we need to understand that Jesus specifically taught that himself in the Gospel of John. In fact, this, these verses in the Gospel of John uh, are actually, in some sense, more deeply and symbolically expounded in, 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 Hebrew, in Revelation chapter 5. So, in John chapter 5, 22-23, uh, Jesus says this, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. 
Now, further on in this passage in chapter 5 of Revelation, we look at how Christ is qualified to be that judge. But what we see so far is what the Bible is teaching us about Jesus. Christ is the judge of all creation on the last day. And Christ is the one who inaugurates all that judgment when that particular day comes. In fact, it's the Father and the Son together who execute all these judgments. Listen to this description of what happens when the sixth seal is broken. This is later on in chapter 7. And I watched when he opened the sixth seal, and a great earthquake took place. And the sun became black like sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth like a fig tree throws down its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll that is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved from their place. And the kings of the earth, and the most important people, and the military leaders, and the rich and the powerful, and every slave and free person hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountain. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, I submit that this is a very, very important aspect to our understanding of our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus. It's, it's very significant to understand that, that at the end of human history, it is going to be Christ who's going to be the judge of all the earth. But I want us to think about how this also applies with respect to our daily lives. Which is to say this. We honor Christ as the judge when here and now in our lives we refuse to do that work of judging and condemning that only belongs to Christ. Let me say that again. We honor Christ as the judge when you and I refuse to do any judging and condemning that really belongs to Christ. We honor Christ when we also deeply grasp that no sin ever committed against us will ever go unaddressed. Let me expand upon this a little bit with a story. It's a, it's, it's a sad story. It's not a good story. It doesn't have a good ending at all. But it brings these issues to light in a very significant way. Uh, sometime back, I was counseling with parents and their grown children. There had been a, a an issue that had deeply separated essentially mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. And for somewhere between 18 months and two years, I worked with them, counseling with them, on again, off again, giving them gospel materials as to how to reconcile, how, as Christians, they were to forgive one another and to move in that direction again and again and again. And I kept feeling like the mother-in-law was not staying at all with what was going on. Uh, again and again, I felt like she just wasn't getting it. She didn't come prepared to the sessions. She just wasn't getting it. And finally, at, at the last session I had with him, this is what she said, and I'm, I'm with her and her husband. This is what she said to me. I just feel like forgiving them, meaning her son and daughter-in-law, I just feel like forgiving them means 
that they're getting away with hurting me. It just doesn't seem fair or right. They should have to pay for hurting me so much. And I thought, she's looking at grace and forgiveness as giving people a free pass. After all this time, she doesn't understand the story of the gospel. Jesus had to come under the judgment of divine wrath. Jesus had to suffer the full measure of what justice demands for our sin in order to atone for our sin, in order for grace and forgiveness to ever be possible. It just, it just, it shook me that after all these months of walking through the gospel, explaining the nature of grace, talking about forgiveness, she still had no clue that Jesus had fully paid the price for her son and daughter-in-law. She still wanted them to pay for their sins themselves. She wanted them to be condemned so that she might feel justified. And what came to my mind in that session is what Jesus says when he finishes teaching the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 14 to 15. He said, if you forgive people their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father forgive your sins. Brothers and sisters, when we see that Jesus is the judge and judgment will come and, and everyone has to account for their sins, the people of God are covered by the blood and those who rejected Christ are not. But the point is, when you know Christ is the judge, you don't ever have to believe that anyone ever gets a free pass. Either they're going to pay for their own sins themselves, separated from God and in eternity in hell, or Christ himself has paid for their sins in their place. No one will ever get a free pass. And that is why you and I can leave those things behind us. Yes, people have hurt us. Yes, people have sinned against us grievously. People have done destructive things. But we don't have to be their judges. We can leave this to Christ. We can leave those things behind and trust that Christ, as the judge of all the earth, will do right. And we can move forward with an attitude and desire for grace and forgiveness. The second role that we see here involves Christ being the conqueror. And so we come to verse 5. We have a double symbol here. Uh, it's the line of the tribe of Judah, who's also called the root of David. Now, both of these statements have their Old Testament, very concrete, specific references, and they pertain to the, the, the prophesied messianic kingship of Jesus when he would come. So this first description comes out of the prophecies given by the patriarch Jacob. 
as at, it's the end of his life, and he's uh, he's dying, but he has blessings to give to all of his twelve sons. So in Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10, he comes to Judah, his son Judah. And this is what he says with respect to Judah. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Verse 10, though, is most specific. The scepter, meaning the thing that a king rules by, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until tribute comes to him, some of your translations will say Shiloh, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And basically that, that promise is that when, when the kingship finally comes within the nation of Israel, it's going to be the line of Judah that's going to have the king whose kingship over Israel was going to be finalized and the kingship of the Messiah, whose kingdom was going to embrace all of the inhabitants of the earth, and all of the peoples of the earth would willingly or unwillingly have to submit and be obedient to him. In fact, the kingship of the Messiah would going to be like the Abrahamic covenant, where God says to Abraham, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And that seed was, in fact, the, the king coming out of the tribe of Judah and eventually out of the line of David. Well, that's what we see as the second title, the root of David. And this phrase really comes out of Isaiah chapter 11. That passage is one often have read at Christmas time. It's one of those great and glorious messianic passages which, which reminded the Jews that God had promised that the brokenness of this world will be finally resolved and solved with the coming of his perfect king. And so we read in verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And then it goes on to talk about how uh, this one is going to be a, have a sevenfold filling of the Spirit of God. And then it's, you read about how the whole creation is going to become unbroken, where the, the wolf and the sheep will lie down together, and the little child will play over the whole of the, of the poisonous snakes, and the whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And in this promise, it's going to be the person of the Messiah, uh, the root of Jesse, who's going to come to destroy all of the wicked so that the whole world can be fulfilled, full of the knowledge of God. As it says in verse 4, He shall strike the earth, with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. So those two statements uh, refer to uh, the Messiah to come who's going to be the conqueror. But that's the key point. That's the key thing that the elder then says after describing uh, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered. And that conquering is what qualifies him to open the scroll, which will become clear under the symbol of the Lamb. It explains how he has conquered. But before going there, we need to consider the fact that the conquering has occurred. Christ has conquered. Christ is the Lion of Judah, the Davidic King, who has conquered. 
And this is the language of warfare and victory. In the great spiritual battle of all the ages, Christ is the victor. He defeated Satan in the temptations in the desert. He defeated Satan in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he was betrayed. He defeated Satan at the cross, so that Christ is truly the seed of a woman who has crushed the serpent's head. Now, what does this Christ the Conqueror mean for us as Christians now? The New Testament has a number of of uh, connections to this idea. Let me just mention a couple of places. In Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul talks about the reality and truth that uh, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purposes. He goes on then to delineate how Christ has been given for us, how God and his sovereignty and providence will take care of us in everything. But as he continues to present these truths about Christ, what Christ has done for us, he comes to verse 37 and he says this, No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. In fact, the word in the Greek means super conqueror through him who loved us. That is, in all of the conditions of life, in all of the circumstances, He's just mentioned persecution in chapter 8. In all of these things, those who are believers in Christ are more than conquerors of themselves, by themselves. No, but through him, through Christ who has loved them. But consider what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 4. He says, little children... You are from God and have overcome them. By the way, I need to point out the connection here. In Revelation chapter 5, when it speaks of Christ having conquered, there's a particular Greek word that's used. That word conquered in Revelation chapter 5 is the same word that Paul uses in Romans 8.37. and just simply adds the prefix super to it, hyper. Now in 1 John chapter 4, and then in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, let me point out how frequently this word conquering continues to occur. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. The word overcome there is to conquer. You have conquered them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Something to never forget. The one who has conquered all evil lives in us as Christians. First John 5, 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. The word overcome conquers. Conquers the world. And this is the victory. There's the word conquer. This is the conquering that has conquered the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes? That is, who is it that conquers the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. What the New Testament is telling us is that it doesn't matter what you and I face. Christ has already conquered. And our faith in Christ, trusting Him in all circumstances, is the very thing which enables us to participate 
more fully in that victory, that conquering of Christ. Because we are united to Christ by faith, when we hold on to Christ, we are sharing in his victory and conquering over the world and the flesh and the devil. So that no matter how much sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. No matter how often we may fail, we continue to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, knowing Christ has conquered. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Knowing that Christ is our victory, knowing that Christ is the one who's conquered for us, enables us to keep persevering with our eyes fixed on him. And then we come then to the third symbolic figure that we find here, which is the sacrifice. Christ is presented as the lamb who, although he's been slaughtered, although he's been slain, he yet stands alive. Now, in this symbolism, there is a mountain of biblical teaching, which we certainly don't have time to explore all of it, but we will focus upon the two things that seem to be very central. What is symbolized here, first and foremost, is the manner in which the Lion of Judah has conquered. What is pictured here is that achievement that has made the Lamb worthy to act as the judge and to break open the seals upon the scroll. And the picture of what qualifies Christ to do this is the picture of this Lamb a lamb that has been slain and yet still stands. Now, of course, that image of the lamb reflects the lamb of the Passover. Think about this, and think about how this is connected to this passage. The Passover lamb was slain so that the children of Israel would be under the blood, protected by the blood of the lamb, but judgment would be executed on all of the household of Egypt. The very mission of the Passover lamb was to bring about protection, uh, salvation, deliverance for the people of God, while all those not under the blood suffer God's executing wrath as all the household of Egypt experienced. Uh, the second image that immediately comes to mind out of this lamb slain will be the sacrifice that's described in Isaiah chapter 53, where Isaiah prophetically describes the death of the Messiah as the sacrifice who would bear the sins of God's people. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Christ bore the judgment for sin so that his people but in fact experience grace and forgiveness. But we recognize too that this slaughtered lamb is standing. He is no longer dead. Rather, he has passed from death to life. He has risen again. And in light of that, his greatness is now revealed with the further descriptions of what this lamb appears to be. He's a lamb that has seven horns. Now in the Old Testament, uh, somebody's horn represented somebody's strength. And so the concept of the horn was a common Hebrew figure and symbol for power. But the lamb has seven horns, which is the number of perfection, 
which is symbolically a way of saying, and the Lamb is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. There is no uh, limit to his power. And then we see that the Lamb has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Another way of symbolically pointing out that the Lamb is all-knowing. The Lamb knows perfectly everything there is to know. The Lamb is omniscient. He knows all things. Now here we have two of the most important attributes that are ascribed to the God of all creation. God who is God Almighty, God All-Powerful, and God who is God who knows all things, God who is omniscient. And these same attributes of God the Father are symbolically ascribed to the Lamb, to the Messiah, to the Son of God. And then we have the response of the Lamb upon taking the scroll. We have the four living creatures and the 24 elders singing a new song in verses 9 and 10. And they say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God for every tribe and every language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. Next Sunday, we're going to look at these two verses in much, much greater depth. But now, recognize it is the work of redemption. It's the, 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 the offering up of himself as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people, fallen human beings. It is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. It's that great act that qualifies Jesus to be the judge. Because at the cross, Jesus himself suffered the judgment for sin from the justice of God. He's qualified to open up the scroll. He's qualified to bring these judgments upon fallen humanity because there is no aspect of God's just wrath that Jesus himself has not suffered or experienced. We're going to continue to look at this chapter. We're going to continue to see how Christ is honored in this chapter. But for you and me, the knowledge of the Son of God establishes our lives in ways in which we can live without having to be judges of others. We can find ourselves and ourselves unable to handle all of the struggles and stresses of life that Christ has conquered for us. And we can recognize that our sins deserved the wrath and curse of God. But Jesus died for us that we could be fully and finally forgiven. Our growing knowledge of the Son of God will enable us to more fully honor the Son even as we honor the Father. For this is why the Father sent the Son into the world, that we might be changed and transformed to be those who would worship God 
and all of who God is in the fullness of God's own spirit and the fullness of God's truth. And so for the glory of Christ, we pray that we may go as far as God's grace and the word of God could take us to know and to honor Christ. In his name, amen. Our Father and our God, we do pray that you would draw us closer and closer to Christ, to the truth of your word, opening up these things, these mysteries, by the work of your spirit, so that we can see Christ, our Redeemer and Lord, in the fullness of his glory, in the fullness of all that he's done for us, that we would be so willing, increasingly willing, to give our lives over to him in every way. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.